Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, David Bainey, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorum and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Socorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it applies to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We'll be reviewing various works from the famed Appendix N, as termed by the revered Gary Gygax, and helping you prepare to serve them at your DCC RPG table. I'm Jen Brinkman, and with me is David the Bacon Wizard Beatty. Greetings, pie people. And Celebrity Catastrophe Island winner-turned-judge Bob Brinkman. <laughs> you are so fired. <laughs> I'm the guy that cackles. People came looking for the guy that cackles. Well, before we get into too much, I feel it is important to state up front that yes, I am Judge Jen of the Spellburn podcast, but the Sanctum Secorum is in no way in competition nor affiliation with Spellburn. Nor am I leaving Spellburn. Everyone knows my passion for the game, and my personal mission statement is all about broadening exposure for Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG. So I'm here with two very talented judges and game masters in their own rights, and we're here to share with you, the listener, some insight into those Appendix N works you may not have gotten around to yet, and we'll show you how seamlessly they can be incorporated into DCC RPG. Our selection of Appendix N material for our inaugural show is The Shadow People by Margaret St. Clair. That's kind of my fault, isn't it? Yeah. Just a little, so just for that, you can give us a brief overall description. Okay, Um, well, the the tagline for it, uh, which is what drew me, I mean, it's got this great cover of this muscular guy with a sword, and it says, they came from the underneath to take over the world. And so I was thinking, this sounds like a great sword sorcery novel. Uh, And then, you know, the the back, it says, they called it Under Earth. It was a kind of hell in reverse, a world of cold darkness and dread existing unsuspected beneath Earth's surface, peopled by weird half-human creatures who had once been men and women. That was just sounding really, really cool. Uh, Later on, of course, after having read it, I found the tagline that was, the invasion of the hallucinogenic people from under Earth. And that really sells it to DCC, I think, right there. Oh, yeah. But, But from there, it goes to, they had existed from time immemorial, hidden in a space warp far beneath the surface of the Earth. Until now, their only form of nourishment had been a strange hallucinogenic grain. Now they hungered for human flesh. The earth was to be their stockyards, and mankind their meat. Well said. The story revolves around Dick Aldridge, and his girlfriend Carol disappears from her apartment one night, and Dick finds faint signs of a struggle, so he goes searching for her. 
he doesn't have any success, so he keeps using more and more esoteric methods to find her until his friend Faye shows him an entrance to the world underneath, uh, which is in the basement of their apartment building in Berkeley, California. So he goes down and finds Carol, but ends up trapped himself. And by the time he's freed, the world above has become much darker as the forces of the underworld are beginning to make their presence felt in the world above. It's dark. (laughs) Just a little. Um, So overall, uh, some of the things that struck us about this piece, um, the language usage, it was all very modern, I would say. Yeah, well, because it takes place in a in a modern setting too. But it wasn't. It didn't have the the major descriptions that you would expect to find in, say, some of Jack Vance's work. That's true. Everything was really kind of vague, except for just a few things. Everything is just really vague. It's just there is this, but it leaves it to the reader what that is. Well, and, and the language usage, things like Margaret St. Clair still uses words like chambermaid, which just kind of struck me. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's set in the, like the, the late 60s, because that's when it, it's, it's from the 60s, so I think that that language drift that we've encountered, you know, over the decades since Appendix N started is really shows here. And I was... Uh... I was a little thrown off by the cover because I expected uh, when I started to read that it was going to be set in a, you know, kind of a fantasy setting, but it actually starts out in kind of a modern setting. So I was a little confused until you start to get in a right. chapters. That's my fault. I judged a book by its cover. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it takes place around like mid to northern California, maybe the Bay Area around the 60s or 70s, but it's also very odd in in that general setting because things like scrying are common occurrences. The scrying and and tarot reading, I mean the whole the main the main basis for it is is Berkeley. I mean they even talk about the hills of Berkeley and then he goes all the way up into wine country. Uh, but it was it was really kind of neat to see the counterculture from the 60s taken one step further, I think. So with with the counterculture, I mean, you know, the 60s that's that's when you know, like the the Rider Waite deck was hitting big. That's when when hippies were really big into reading cards, and this sort of takes that that hippie vibe, pushes it a step further, and then by the end of the book, turns it into a very dark place overall. Yeah, the the book definitely takes a twist. I think, especially when they start to delve into the underearth, which I thought was really cool. I got a lot of ideas for you know homebrew campaign stuff just from the way she's described the things in the Underearth, I think it was really cool. I agree. Well, and, and looking at it, there was there were so many things there that you could stat up and drop into a game. You know, I, I put together kind of a, a, a list of, of things that I pulled out that I could easily drop into, into a, a module like you know, the, the Magic Sword, the Sword of Merlin. I mean, it, it read just like a magic sword out of DCC. The way it communicated was more empathic, simple urges, because it would just vibrate, didn't yeah. speak, but it was obviously intelligent. 
There was the Glane, the, the magic stone yeah, that they deal with later on in the book. They refer to it a lot, but we only actually see it at, like, the last page. Right, yeah, it's it's kind of the climax, and admittedly, the, the end of the book is really kind of abrupt. You know, it's, hey, look, it's the Glane, and scene. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's the, the races, like, you know, the, the silent people, which are the, the subterranean elves, and they're really creepy, and they're subtypes, and half-elves... Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that Joseph Goodman encouraged in the DCC rulebook was to take monsters and actually give them a unique twist. And I think this is one example of that, but actually using one of the playable races. You know, if you wanted to come up with a really creepy campaign and you didn't particularly like elves, you could really twist them up like the, they, they are in this book. And I think that, you know, a, a buddy of mine used to always kind of rant about dark elves and D&Ds. Like, okay, so they're subterranean elves, but unlike anything else from underground, they're black. You know, whereas normally things are white and eyeless, and here you've got all of these different subtypes that are essentially based on their skin color. You've got, you know, the white that are kind of the slaves that we see. There's the gray, and they're kind of the common. There's the black elves, which are described as made of the color black that are sort of a rulership class that we see towards the end. And then there's the green, uh, and we only encounter one green, and as far as I know, he's not actually green, but they can pass as human. So you've got all these neat subtypes. More chameleon. Yeah, you've got these great subtypes that all work together and give it some real breadth. And the gray. Yep. The gray king. Well, yeah, and then there was the gray king who is, who is one of the gray type, kind of the common type, the way they describe him. But, but short. Yeah, not necessarily dwarf, but but was it a, a squished down elf? Yeah, they call it, they, they say it looks like one of the gray elves that had just been squished down. You know, they describe him as like fat and just horribly creepy. But he There's found, a lot of things. And he, he found a way around that, though. He was riding elves around in the, uh, in the novel. He was riding one of the white elves, one of the slave elves. Yeah, I immediately had a flashback to uh, Beyond Thunderdome with Master Blaster on that. <laughs> same here. I was thinking the exact same thing. Guilty as charged, yeah. We have the hero who is, through a strange course of events, brought down to the passageways to the Underearth. And that's where he meets these. And... One of the most fascinating parts is the amount of time that has passed when he thinks it's only been a week, maybe, maybe two, and three years have passed. Yeah, I believe it was three years. Oh, that was because of the uh, the Addercorn. Oh, the Addercorn. The hallucinogenic grain, yes, and and the what was it the the protein starving of everybody else down there. So they were mostly cannibals. Yeah, that was comforting. Yeah, so right up DCC's alley, really. Oh, yeah. Cannibalistic subterranean elves. It's like chuds with pointy ears. <laughs> I'll bet you Doug can draw that. <laughs> I bet you Doug already has. <laughs> Fair point. But as a matter of fact, I've started statting some of these things up. So, you know, after people listen to the show, they can go and and we'll have some stat blocks there for various things they can grab if they want to use them or if they want to put their own spin on things. 
and you know, if they want to submit their own version of stuff to us, we can put it up as well. Yeah, we'd love to see what you guys could come up with. Yeah, because yeah, there's no there's no right way to staff these up. Well, everything's objective, and exactly. in fact, if all three of us were to stat up the same item, I'm sure we'd end up just going in three different directions. Challenge accepted. Very cool idea. Well, we all know our own tables, so we could play to I them. I don't have a DCC table. <laughs> no time like the present. Oh yeah, because I need to run four games. That's what I need to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> so you said we've got some items, we've got critters to stat. What about the hero himself? That'd be interesting. I hadn't even thought about statting him up as an NPC, but that'd certainly be a cool idea. Yeah, because he ended up an elf himself, or possibly... Or he had elf blood? Yeah. He was he was half-elf, essentially. And then, of course, you could always... You could stat up the person that helped him out, Faye, who yep. goes on to be the Faye queen. Yeah, and, that, uh, that wasn't a giveaway at all. No, not at all. Um, or you could stat up Hood, who was one of the, the green elves, who's the, the villain of the story, or the Grey King. Yeah, there's a lot of individuals you could stat up as NPCs as well. So we've got things to stat. What about other things at the table? David, this is kind of your your baby. You you do the props, you do yeah. audio, you, you do the all-submersive I get made fun of a little bit at the table, but I do like to bring uh, some sounds in. Uh, it doesn't always work, and it's really hard to do this when you're running a session at you know, a con because it's so loud. But I would suggest you try it if you are at home with your group. You know, one day, if you're not already using sounds or music, it's definitely something that you could try to add an element of uh, the macabre. I mean, if you're trying to set a stage of a horror-based encounter, there's a tune out there, there's sound effects that you can use. And what I've been doing is, before I run any sort of adventures, I'll break down the encounters, and I'll look at the overall theme, and I'll try and pick a uh, either a soundtrack song, or in some cases a song with words will work, but you're basically just trying to build a sense of dread or, or something when with the music that you pick out. And from there, I'll actually look into possible sound effects. And uh, <laughs> I know I'm going a little uh, overboard here, but it really works. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, there's there's some really cool stuff from this, too, that you can use. I mean, there's the, the Merlin's chant in the book. Yes. Which, which we now have a recorded version for the site. But it's it's something you can throw in the background pretty much to use for any sort of ritual scene in a game. Yeah. Prop-wise, there's Adderkorn. Adderkorn is just... I'm fascinated <laughs> by Adderkorn. I don't know about you guys. Uh, yeah, I was definitely... Uh, that was the main thing that I have uh, held in my head since finishing the book was the Adderkorn. It's uh, it's something you could very easy... I think Bob actually found a partially cooked popcorn that would do very well for Adderkorn. There is. There's a product on the market called Half Pops, and they're, they're fairly new. It's sort of like partially pop popcorn and they do something to it so it doesn't break your teeth so it's about as crunchy as a peanut <laughs> and I was thinking you could take a bunch of those and give them a coarse grind because Adderkorn's described as a brick red coarse cornmeal so if you give them kind of a coarse grind with a mortar and pestle and then lightly mix in some red food coloring and let that dry you can have little plates of the Adderkorn at your table so this year, or excuse me, next year at GaryCon, you're going to be carrying around little sacks of Adderkorn for folks, right? 
everyone's going to have red fingers as opposed to those Cheeto <laughs> orange fingers. <laughs> but you can just sit it out at the table and you know put it out. You could really get immersive. If you're putting out other snacks at the table and you put that out, if people start eating that, count them as having eaten that in character. And mm-hmm. so now they're, they're stuck in the underworld. Or they take X stat damage. Or they just trip. You know, just lace it, <laughs> lace it with something. That's all. No, no, I'm not telling you to lace, <laughs> lace, lace your gamer. No, don't, don't, don't. Uh, Bob Brinkman slipped me a roofie. <laughs> Oh, that explains so much. Yeah. It does. <laughs> it really does. But for those uh, who are listening, uh, the Adderkorn is the main element in the, the novel, and it's a, uh, like Bob said, it's a, a very coarse meal, and it's left out in saucers all throughout the adventure. And by eating it, it's a hallucinogenic, and most of the elves that eat it under the underground I believe once they eat it, they start to hallucinate that they're animals, if I'm not mistaken. Is that how? They they do, and they cycle through. Like morphing. Yeah, yeah they cycle through like eight or nine different types of animals, because he's able to look at, at some elves under the influence, and he knows what they're hallucinating as, and it changes, uh, it, it changed the area around them, so the landscape around them would morph and change, and then there's the time distortion, which I think is something really cool to bring to the table. As a plot device, your characters go in, they've eaten some Adderkorn, and you know there's this weird dreamlike quality, and they come out, and five years have passed. Congratulations, everyone you know is dead. Well, that, that beats the heck out of the other effect, which is the crippling depression and despair, and just curling up and wanting to die for yeah. a couple of days or weeks. Yeah, because our main hero in the story, once he started actually eating the Adderkorn, he would spend long hours sleeping after he ate it he would hallucinate and then I believe he would go very lethargic and just find a a crevice or something to curl up in it's sort of like edible opium (laughs) you've got these weird opium dreams and everything's really strange and it was written in the 60s yeah so it it really fits how about that (laughs) And, and one other really cool thing I thought once you had partaken of the Adderkorn, you wouldn't be able to leave the Underearth, but our hero actually discovered, I think by accident, a way to leave, and, and that kind of gives you a, a new take on poisons. I believe once he got cut, maybe by accident, he actually bled some of the Adderkorn out, maybe? Right. It was like the essence of the Underearth was in the Adderkorn, because he was half-elf, he couldn't leave. Humans could, but half-elves couldn't, and he bled it out. It was like, in is it... Uh, Tower of the Black Pearl, where you have to you spell burn without yes. spell burning to get through a door. Yes, it was it was like that. He cut, he bled, he bled it out, and then he was pure. So again, it it really just fits with DCC. Yeah, and that's a great. Don't like it, bleed it. And I never thought about putting a poison in an adventure where one of the ways to get it out of your system would be to bleed out. And I think that's a kind of a cool idea. Oh, that would be so. God, brutal. <laughs> well, and then get your players used to that mechanic, and then stop using it and let their characters bleed to death. <laughs> but, well, yeah, that, that goes hand in hand. <laughs> but, that, Bob, you bring up a really good point, and there are so many module inspirations. You know, what are some of the tie-ins we get from this material? You know, that you've got that similarity, you know, that the passages themselves the way that he gets down into the Underearth, it reminds me a bit of, like, People of the Pit, where you have the different methods of travel to get from one section to the next. 
sometimes it's a hidden yeah because he uh he, actually, he entered into the under earth i believe through was it the basement or through a crack in the wall in the apartment i can't remember yeah it was it was in the basement and it was a it was a crack that he he found it was too small to go into but he'd been guided to it by smell and by the cold air and at one point he ends up in somebody else's backyard but then he follows the smell and there's another entrance there through the wall and it's sort of like an underground railroad to hell <laughs> there's all these weird little stops sometimes he comes up and he's at street level in somebody's shed or he's in a dark cave and then suddenly he's at the entrance with this river and to touch upon what Jen was saying it's it's an alternate way it's uh, I've, I've never seen anything like that before. The the way he traveled through the Underearth was going through a lot of places that he shouldn't have been able to fit. Not sure if it was be yeah. because of uh, the fact that he was an elf or if he was willing himself to fit through these places, but I really liked that idea. It was uh, kind of a cool mode of transportation. I thought it was kind of the, the spots were not necessarily hidden, but disguised so that they looked like you couldn't get through them, but you barely could. It was, and you know, since they describe the elves are several times described as boneless, like yeah. eels, rubber elves. So <laughs> yeah, they are. They're stretch Armstrong elves, and so they can sort of move around. But Faye is telling him that no matter how small it looks, people come and go through here because the elves are dragging people back to eat them. They've got to be big enough for humans. They just don't have to be comfortable. And there and again, you can make your elves and DCC flesh-eating elves. Yeah. <laughs> they don't need to be vegetarian tree huggers. They yeah. can be cave-dwelling man-eaters. <laughs> <laughs> and when the hero emerges, all that time has passed. It's almost post-apocalyptic in the setting of the city that he used to live in. And there's the creatures, the robo-fuzz... The RoboFuzz, yeah, or the robotic pigs, as they also refer to them. Again, very 60s counterculture. <laughs> and uh, the protector automatons that show up in the 998th Wizards Conclave. Very, very similar oh, yeah. idea. Oh, yeah. And they also kind of remind me there's... And, and again, I, I'm a good boy since I play at the table. I don't read, I don't read a lot of modules. <laughs> but I know that one of the mods... Has has some sort of like floating robot thing on the cover, or a big robotic thing on the cover. Help me out with this, Jen. I know we own it. <laughs> Could you be more specific? Is it maybe frozen in yes. time? Frozen. Uh, yes. And I don't know if the I don't know if it's floating or not, but that's the sort of robotic thing that I imagined when I thought of the RoboFuzz. Because, like Jen was saying, there's not a lot of detail in the description. We know that it floats that it's got some sort of manipulator, and then it has a grill over its view screen, and that's all we really know about it. That's that's the entirety of the description. And so... And like a mechanical voice, cover, yeah. Yeah, having seen that cover, I instantly you know, draw over to... Well, that's, that's the RoboFuzz. They kind of put that in my brain. Well, for you specifically, since you haven't read all of the DCC well, mods... Right. Um... Anything with Hugh on the cover will tie to this book. The hero is described as having the luxuriant mustache. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Maybe maybe the, the hero really is Hugh. Maybe it's a pre-Hugh Hugh. Hmm. Maybe we should ask Doug if this is where he got Hugh, the, the idea of Hugh. 
Well, it comes from the 60s. They would have a wizard van in the 60s. Just saying. <laughs> um, but, you know, for other other things that it's sort of... That the, the feel ties into, for me, the thing that struck me the most was I really got a feel in portions of Black Sun Death Crawl by James McGeorge. You know, it's very bleak. It's very dark. And... Uh, yeah, a few people have already started reskinning that. I know Stephen Bean is doing it as Null Singularity at uh, Big Bad Con in October. But there's a there's a scene where he comes across a group of the silent people, and I, I've got the quote here because it's just so great. When I got up to the noise, I saw it came from a niche in the rock where two or three men, it was hard to be sure in the wan light, were doing something to another who lay spread against the sand. One man had control of each of the victim's arms, and the third pulled his tongue from his mouth and was jabbing at it with some instrument. The flapping noise came from the beating of the victim's heels against the sand as he writhed in pain and tried to free himself. And that entire scene plays out silently. There's no screams, there's no crying out. It, there's just this feeling of bleak nightmare that, to me, really evokes the whole Black Sun. Ooh, so if you're using audio in your game, that would be the perfect time to just turn off everything. Yeah. And provide yeah. that alternate silence. And Ooh. then there's there's a there's another scene where they describe he's looking into a cave and it looks like a fur-lined nest, and as he looks closer, it's made of a patchwork of flayed elven scalps that have been roughly stitched together and are rotting, and it's just brutally dark and it gives this sense of despair and hopelessness and black sun death crawl yeah. <laughs> which I, I actually received uh, today in the mail so thanks James McGeorge for your uh, wonderful adventure I can't wait to read it yeah it it's really really that that's a great adventure it's really cool the the way he formatted the whole thing is is very different you know it sits down you can read it sort of almost like a book of parables and then play through it. And it's funny you yeah. mention it because uh, as I was uh, getting ready for the show today, I was just looking at the cover and I was thinking, wow, this is kind of tying into the shadow people. Really, it really kind of does. You know, the digging further and further into the earth as the light as the light from the black sun burns away at them. I'm really looking forward. I'm hoping that uh, after Big Bad Con, Stephen Bean puts up a write-up of his reskin. Because oh, yeah. it's inspired by things like 2001 and, and all of the kind of bleak space movies where people end up with horrible things happening. So that should be a lot of fun. You know, anyone who reads this book, uh, you will definitely take away several things that you can use to help describe your encounters. Just things that you, you may read that will... Uh, be something that you could actually place into your encounters. One of the things that uh, sticks out to me was the lair of the gray dwarf or the uh, squished elf, as we're calling him. <laughs> uh, you know, his little cage or his little nest that he lived in was, like Bob had mentioned, is full of elven scalps, which I just thought was really cool. And the, the, the permeating smell of rotten meat. So I'm thinking the next time I do something, uh, I may just get a steak and leave it out for a couple of weeks outside. Oh, and, uh, oh that's that's brutal. Yeah. That's, 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 that's harsh. I, as, <laughs> as long as you're holding the game at your house, I wouldn't recommend it for a game at a store. <laughs> or at a convention you don't plan on attending again. 
<laughs> hey, that's that's how legends are born, though. You remember that guy? He brought the steak. You know, the rotting steak. Oh. Yeah. Well, you know. Why? <laughs> admittedly, that's that's not a, a sense that judges normally hit when they're bringing out props. So, you know, rotting meat there you is go. different, I guess. Uh, that's, you that's wouldn't need much. Very yeah. <laughs> yeah, they probably wouldn't come back if I did that, so I'm, I'm going to go. They probably ahead. wouldn't let you come back if you did that, but, you know. Stick with squished sandwiches like they just came out of our hero's pocket. <laughs> Maybe a little waterlogged after getting out of the lake, you know? <laughs> That's a good idea. I don't know about anybody else, but the other module that really kind of came to my mind when I was reading it was Sailors on the Starless Sea. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the concept of going below ground to hunt out the kidnapped girlfriend sort of reminds me of the theme. Villagers have been disappearing. You go look for them. You end up underground. I mean, it's it's a common adventure trope, but just dovetails so nicely together and you could easily do you know, return visits to the under earth to expand that subterranean world the the river that he crosses when he enters through through the uh, the portal underneath california could easily be a tributary that feeds into the starless sea yeah it's it's it, i think that you could reskin sailors and throw in some uh, influences from the Shadow People. And, you know, folks who have actually gone through the adventure before might not even realize what they're going through if you took the time to change some things up. Well, like the like the cannibals, um, the sight and smell of their own blood, the Shadow People went into a frenzy and attacked each other. You could do that with the Beastmen. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and I kept, you know, I kept picturing what it'd be like to stumble through a mammoth cave with just a torch for light. You know, there's that, that weird claustrophobic feeling, and since this isn't a world of neatly laid out dungeons, you know, there's slender crevasses, big chasms, dead-end caves, I think that you could take, you could take material from this book, add it essentially to the sides or underneath the existing material from Sailors on the Starless Sea, and you could turn it into its own mini-campaign. You've encountered the Starless Sea, you've defeated the Beastmen hordes atop the, the Ziggurat, but there's... But you keep ending up... You know, there's, there's other ways. You keep finding other ways that lead you to this underworld. I mean, they they describe the Under-Earth as this huge belt that encircles the world, and the way the entrances are, are hidden, like we were discussing... It gives the whole thing kind of a spooky factor. You know, passages that are unseen, but you can find them if you know how. Follow the smells. And the, the the sword that he finds, which ends up being Merlin's sword, kind of steered him away from the unsafe areas, like that sudden drop-off of ground that seems to lead into black nothingness. And to me, that really ties in with... Um, it, it's area... H, I believe, the new uh, the additional text that Harley was able to add to Sailors in the later printings and it's got some parts where, yeah you're walking along, you're investigating and sorry, there's just no ground underneath you anymore Yeah, and you could actually even have placed that sword I, I don't, I can't recall the exact encounter but the, uh, the, the tomb where um, they actually get into the the lower levels there where the the knight i guess the one of the brothers that actually had yes um and that reminded me of the ice 
uh, skull cave that he yeah. uh, that the hero finds as well. That could be the frozen tomb. Isn't isn't the uh, the ice skull the same spot where he actually discovers he can bleed the yes. otherness out of him? Yeah, that's when that happened, I believe. Yeah, because as as he bleeds out, the frozen portion starts melting away. Oh yeah, it it could be a lot of fun. There was there was a lot of really cool flavor that that just I I think ties into and expands on sailors so perfectly. Well, I was just gonna say, you know, you get so many I guess encounters where you read aloud what the author has has left for you, but like you were saying, Bob, when you read through this novel, um, it really kind of I don't know it it opened up a few doors for me to use some of the descriptors in the in the book to actually. Uh, describe my own like under you know under under earth encounters well and it's it's kind of funny uh, I was just recently reading on uh, I think it was on Facebook someone had asked Ernie Gygax what he liked to use a judge's screen for and a lot of other people had chimed in you know to hide dice and things like that and DCC is very you know roll them out hit as they hit mm-hmm. and what he had said was he liked to use the screen besides just having tables available it provided a barrier between the the physical existence of the person running the game and the players so that the players were just looking at him they were using their imagination and and you know visualizing what was really happening rather than just staring at him and you know when i think about that and i think about the way things are described or not described really major things are described in the book and everything else is vague but I can still see it all in my mind's eye because there was nothing else to focus on and so I filled in the blanks right because the author didn't go overboard with the descriptors it wasn't like reading say Anne Rice or something where you're wading through three pages three pages of descriptions of what is on the table to eat <laughs> right <laughs> yeah no it it was very very minimal, but punched where it needed to. Yeah, I agree. There was there was a lot of real good, solid punch to it. And you know, you could even take uh, some of the uh, sailors' adventure. You could replace the beastmen with uh, the elves. You know, those could be the beastmen, and the the gray dwarf could actually be uh, one of the main enemies in the at the end of the adventure to defeat. I mean, you could do a lot of things. Oh, up on the ziggurat. Right. Yes, and the the expansion of releases for Sailors on the Starless Sea. So they, they have the alternate covers out now for the module with the other artists doing it kind of an homage to Doug Kovacs' style. And I noticed that of all of them, Peter Mullins really varies because... It's not a beast man in front of the ziggurat, you know, that you don't have that in the background. It's obviously more of an underground scene, and the monster they're fighting looks kind of like the effigy at the end, but in the background you have the shadowed cultus, which really, seeing that, seeing that cover really just made it fit more with well, the the book that Bob judged by a cover at the very beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Judge a book by a cover. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the thing is, yeah, I mean, looking at the the artist covers, while they are, they're all essentially the same scene, you know, interpreted different ways. 
they're almost in a lot of ways they're almost suggestions on how you could slightly reskin the module itself uh, whereas you know the, the Peter Mullins one certainly really fits with, with what we're talking about today each one has something a little different that you could take to the table and oh all and the variations yes yeah. definitely so I, I think those are really neat and, and uh, we don't own all of them yet why I think Jen told you you were on mm, restrictions at Gen Con, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the completest in me. Yeah. But there was so much other stuff to buy at the Goodman's booth, so. Uh, that would be why we didn't pick up every single copy of and Sailors, some, yes. And we got some really, really good third-party stuff that, that hopefully we can cover in, in later shows, because some of the stuff that's coming out of the community is just amazing. Oh, yeah. That it is. And the thing is, you go to these cons, and you and I, you guys, we've hit a lot of the same cons this year, and you think, well, I've, I think I've picked everything up, so there's not going to be a whole lot for me to have to spend money on. And then you go to somewhere like the Gen Con, and there's, you're spending $200 in one day on things that you didn't know were coming out or, or stuff that have just been released. So Joseph Goodman is definitely the dark master when it comes to... <laughs> uh, you know, I've asked I've asked if I could just set up, you know, like a monthly credit card <laughs> auto-debit. You know, can I just subscribe? Yes. Yeah. I just want to subscribe. You know, can I subscribe to the Kickstarters? Please, please, please. <laughs> can we do it in payments? Yeah. I mean, there's so much great stuff is coming. Um, I and, Well, and speaking of Kickstarters, I know that uh, the Hubris campaign setting is going to be kickstarting soon so there's going to be another you know third party DCC kickstarter going on uh, just, there's so much goodness yeah, the community is so vibrant and I, I think that's kind of what inspires the show is the, the community is is so rich and full of ideas and everybody shares and being able to share some of our ideas with other folks well on that note I think that wraps us up for tonight we hope you've heard something in this show that inspires you. The module choice for this episode was admittedly an easy one, as it's one of the most popular in the DCC RPG line to date. But tune in to our upcoming shows as we tackle some of the less traveled adventures and the more obscure connections. Um, if you'd like to chime in or have a suggestion for a future topic, you can email us at thehub at sanctum.media and by all means if you have any convention or road crew games coming up let us know and we'll try to give you a shout out in an upcoming episode definitely so that'll do it for us we'll wish you good evening and good DCC gaming later pod people be inspired take care goodbye You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum Podcast. Join us again in two weeks' time when we gather to discuss the works of Jack Vance with The Last Castle.
The Sanctum Secorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2015.